Thanks, Ben, and thanks for your welcome. It's always good to come, uh, not just to services like this at Grace, but also to spend time with you guys and girls. It's uh, encouraging for me, so thank you for tolerating an old man, as uh, that's the only reason I've done what Ben was alluding to. I've just been around a long time, uh, but great to share Jesus with you. Uh, now, we've got this... Um, challenge as you go through Exodus of preaching about the plagues. You'll be glad to know if you're here for the welcome lunch or anything else, we're not going to preach on all 12, 10 of them, uh, but uh, we'll give you an overview at one stage and then camp down on the fourth plague. So if you've got a Bible and you want to turn to it, it's Exodus chapter 8. It'll come up on the screen. We'll read from Exodus chapter 8 and verse 20. Then the Lord said to Moses, get up early in the morning and confront Pharaoh as he goes to the river and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you do not let my people go, I will send swarms of flies on you and your officials and on your people and into your houses. The houses of the Egyptians will be full of flies. Even the ground will be covered with them. But on that day, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen where my people live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. I will make a distinction between my people and your people. This sign will occur tomorrow. And the Lord did this. Dense swarms of flies poured into Pharaoh's palace and into the houses of his officials throughout Egypt. The land was ruined by flies. Then Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God, but here in the land. But Moses said, That would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commands us. Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to the Lord your God in the wilderness but you must not go very far. Now pray for me. Moses answered, As soon as I leave you, I will pray to the Lord, and tomorrow the flies will leave Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Only let Pharaoh be sure that he does not act deceitfully again by not letting the people go to offer sacrifices to the Lord. Then Moses left Pharaoh and prayed to the Lord. And the Lord did what Moses asked. The flies left Pharaoh and his officials and his people. Not a fly remained. But this time also, Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not let the people go. I think we need the help of the Spirit to understand and apply that. So let's pray briefly together. Lord, we thank you for your word, that it's a living word, 
that it speaks to us and instructs us and gives us uh, all that we need to be thoroughly equipped as men and women of God. Some passages are more obvious than others. Some we struggle with. Lord, by the help of your Holy Spirit, help us to understand what you're revealing of yourself through these verses this morning. and Help us to apply it to our own individual lives and the world in which we live today. We ask it for the sake of Jesus. Amen. Well, I don't know what you think when you hear the word plague. I suspect it's uh, visions of 1665 when the buconic plague, the Black Death, stalked across the city of London and wider in Europe. And during that year alone killed 69,000 citizens of our capital city, though some scholars think it was twice that number. The filmmakers love the plague, don't they? What images you can produce, people with boils all over them, folks who are having to secrete out dead bodies in the middle of the night, carting them away to a common grave, trying to take protective measures so that they themselves won't be got at by the plague as it strikes many people down. It is an awful, a terrible situation. When we come to the tenth plague that Moses inflicts at God's command on Egypt, death stalks the land. But until that time, the plagues are of a very different nature. And we need to get into what Scripture is actually saying rather than lay on it images that come from another time. Uh, did you know that the word plague is not actually to be found in the Bible text as it tells you what's happening here? Uh, it speaks of signs and portents and miraculous actions, but it doesn't use the word plague. You may say, well, look at my Bible. It's got all sorts of little headings in it. The plague of frogs, the plague of gnats, the plague of flies. Yeah, but they were put in by editors later. They're not part of the original story, which uses indeed this word for a warning sign or a miraculous sign, rather than conjuring up this medieval picture of plagues. We're going to look at the fourth plague this morning because that, in so many ways, is representative of the others midway through the ten of them, or almost midway through the ten of them. It tells us much of the purpose of God in uh, producing these plagues. Uh, but let me stand back and draw just a little bit of a wider picture for you. And ask, for example, why are there ten of them? Well, there are ten of them because the Egyptian culture and the uh, uh, Israelite culture at the time was a decimal culture, would you believe? They counted in tens as we count today. So it was a natural reaction uh, to think in terms of ten as the completion of a sequence. They actually break down into three groups of three. The first group are minor irritations, and indeed the first couple of plagues are not so great that so that even the magicians of Egypt are able to reproduce them, and the Egyptian 
priests are therefore saying to Moses and Aaron, so what's so great about your God and what's so great about what you're doing? But as time goes on, they increase in severity and intensity, becoming more and more not just inconvenient, but uh, really taking their toll of the life of Egypt. So that after the nine natural plagues, which have left people untouched, but the land stricken, there comes that tenth plague when uh, God takes away the life of the Egyptian firstborn. So the sequence goes from inconvenience and minor misery to great grief and mourning as death does strike. The scholars like to look at these plagues and say, well, actually there's nothing much miraculous in them, you know. (laughs) We can explain them all in terms of natural causes. It's all to do with the weather, really. The Met Office could have predicted in Egypt that this would happen, you know, because, uh, well, just as there are variations in our weather today, so in Egypt, these are just distortions of the normal weather patterns. So there are always uh, uh, the silt and the mud always came down the River Nile, and it looked as though the Nile was reddish and full of blood. It just happened that it was exaggerated when this plague took place. There are always frogs coming out of the uh, river Nile. But at this particular time, the atmospheric conditions meant that they reproduced themselves in total abundance. Uh, And uh, gnats or, or, or mosquitoes, well, they're part of hot cultures. I've not long come back from... Bangalore, I've been there for a number of years now. I've usually been in April, and it's been extremely hot, and I've been bitten all over by mosquitoes. This time I went in January. The temperature was a little cooler. They still got me a little, but nothing like they did on earlier visits. Oh, this isn't anything exceptional. This is just nature acting a little out of character, A little extreme, but then that happens, doesn't it? We know that. We're concerned about it all the time. We don't get too much flooding in Britain, and then these last couple of years, we've suddenly, in ways that we can explain, actually experienced all sorts of flooding and devastation in situations. That's what's going on here. Well, that's very curious if that's the explanation. It doesn't really settle everything at all. It's not just about flooding or breeding conditions or atmosphere uh, hotting up. Uh, Clearly, they're related to nature. God is at work in his world. As the creator, it would be surprising if he wasn't. But it's more than environmental. You see, what's going on here is too extreme to be explained naturally. And there are other things that just don't tie up if all you do is give them a natural explanation. These things come at Moses' command. When he says, tomorrow this will happen, tomorrow it happens. Now, you know how uncertain our sophisticated forecasting system of the weather happens in Britain. We have all that Met Office information and scientific evidence and computer calculations to tell us what's going to happen tomorrow. And does it? (laughs) 
Not always. So if it's just Moses having some insider knowledge, well, that's pretty remarkable, isn't it? And Pharaoh doesn't treat them as simply natural. He gets his magicians involved. He thinks there's some supernatural dimension going on. And uh, uh, the amazing thing is that when the plagues come, as we read just now, the gnats come down, or the flies rather, come down in this fourth plague, and they affect the whole land of Egypt. But God says they'll stop at the boundary of Goshen. It's as if they're flying across the land of Egypt and they come up against an invisible wall. Wouldn't Donald Trump love that? (laughs) To keep the flies out and prevent them from affecting the land of Goshen. If they're natural, surely their guidance system wouldn't have been so exact. (laughs) And the children of Israel protected in the way in which they did. No, the plain reading and the evidence is, as you read them carefully, that here is God at work. And in this uh, curious, uh, uncomfortable way, God is revealing something of himself to Pharaoh and to the children of Israel. And they reveal uh, aspect after aspect of the character of God. Let me take you to the fourth plague, the plague of flies, and show you here three major aspects of the character of God. Uh, First of all, this plague reveals something of God's passion. It begins by Moses meeting Pharaoh early in the morning with his brother uh, Aaron and demanding yet again that God has said, let my people go. Free them from the slavery and captivity you're holding them in, in Egypt. And this reveals the passionate heart of God, that the people he has made in his image should not experience oppression and slavery, but be free. In Egypt, they'd gone down voluntarily at a crisis moment to find food. They'd stayed and stayed down the generations, and the back story had been forgotten, and now they were kept as slaves there. They were simply units of production for Pharaoh's great building programs. They were simply economic units and ends, rather than being treated as people at all. They weren't given autonomy, treated with dignity or with respect. Pharaoh had no idea that they were made in the image of God. They were simply there to be used for Pharaoh's own ends. And when God says through Moses to Pharaoh, let my people go, he is revealing his passion around the world to overthrow oppression and to dethrone tyrants and to set the people who are made in his image to be free. Slavery has stalked world history for centuries. It's taken various forms. There's still a huge amount of economic and political slavery in the world. We in our own nation know what it is for people to be sex slaves and to be trafficked from Thailand or from uh, 
various parts of Africa, Somalia, or wherever. And God is revealing himself as a God who is in opposition to that. And down the years, we need to praise God that many of the tyrants have been overthrown. And for a period at least, people have experienced freedom before Satan twists somebody else's arm to set themselves up as an oppressor or to inflict some new form of slavery on people. God is against slavery. His passion is for people to be free. But that image has been often used by many purely as a political message. So freedom is what it's all about. Well, not quite when you read the text. One of the games we often play is to cut off a text in the middle far too soon. (laughs) So we are keen, and our politicians are sometimes keen, in using the slogan, let my people go. But there they stop. But what does Moses actually say? Let my people go so that they may worship me. God's desire is not only that people should be set free, but that in their freedom they might learn to relate to him and connect with the one who is their maker and their sovereign and their redeemer. There's no point in setting people free if all you do is uh, set them free to anarchy, set them free to lostness. We've got plenty of experience of that in our recent history. We toppled Saddam Hussein but had no idea about the reconstruction that was needed afterwards, as if merely toppling the tyrant was enough. No, no, the point God makes is set my people free in order that they might enter into a relationship with me, in order that they might know the fullness of life and the richness of life, and not exchange one set of tyranny for either half-life or another set of tyranny but in order that they might relate to the one who is their creator. That's true freedom. Living in relationship with God. It's the third aspect of God's pleasure that comes out here. It is a passion for freedom and a passion for relationships with these people. That's why he made us in the first place. But this also reveals a passion for life. Uh, we may pass over it fairly easily. The words uh, may seem to us a bit flat. If you don't let my people go, I'll send swarms of flies on you and your officials. But those who knew their Old Testament scriptures well and heard that word swarms might have connected up the dots in their thinking with another place where such word is used. God is actually saying to Pharaoh, I will let, uh, I, I will let these uh, flies team across your land. There won't just be a few of them. They'll be abundant. They'll be everywhere. They'll get into all your drawers and all your closets and all your cupboards and all your food and all your clothes. You won't be able to get rid of them. They will be teeming, not just a, a few of them or a moderate number of them but abundant. 
And God is saying to Pharaoh, listen, when you don't live in accordance with me, when you oppress other people, when you break my rules and ride roughshod over my purpose in creation, then creation itself will rebel against you and react against you. And what I intended to be good will be bad. It will bounce back. Why do I say that? Well, read Genesis chapter 1. When God made the world, what does Genesis 1 tell us? Uh, Genesis 1 chapter 20 said, Let the water team swarm with living creatures. Let the birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. Genesis chapter 1 verse 24 says something similar about animals <coughs> on the land. Uh, God created our world to teem with life which was positive, that would provide for people the summit of his creation. Not just a miserly existence, but in abundance. The creation would be something that was alive and vital, full of movement, because God had enriched it and resourced it so well. And what God intended for good in the first place, when people rebel against God, becomes something which moves against them and is bad. Ride roughshod over the creation laws, especially in regard to the creation of human beings, and even the very environment will react against you. We've a lot of conversation about global warming at the moment, and some of it relates to this. That if you live selfishly, if you don't care for those who are hungry and poor, if you oppress others, then even the creation will revolt. Do you remember the way in which Genesis tells us that God created the world out of something that was um, without form and void? Darkness and chaos was across the face of the earth. And God brought life and light into the world. And God is saying, when you rebel against me, Pharaoh, when you live and abuse your power to oppress other people, then you are causing creation to revert to chaos rather than to enjoy the life and the abundance that God intended to have. Oh, Pharaoh isn't just taking a political decision to keep the children of Israel down. He's actually against God in doing that and against the very life that God built into creation. The whole of creation is caught up in this struggle to reflect God's purpose for it. God is on the side of freedom and of relationships and of life. And that's the perspective with which we need to read this plague. That's what's lying behind in the heart and the reason of God. Well, this plague does more than that, as the others do too. It not only reveals God's passion, it reveals God's power. There are many people in the world today who say, well, when you do wrong, then certain consequences inevitably follow. But they follow in a sort of fairly mechanical, obvious way. So if uh, 
you drive your motorbike recklessly and you fall off, then the consequences will be you'll break your leg. There's an obvious uh, law of cause and effect there. And when we live against God's will, then there is a cause and effect. We will reap the rewards and they won't be good. And that's partially true, but it's not the whole truth. And it's not adequate just to say that God has created the world in a particular way and if we live differently, then we'll buy into the consequences. Because what these plagues tell us is that God is not passive in heaven when wickedness goes on in the earth. He isn't just sitting there letting things take their course. But periodically, at least, God actively steps in and takes the initiative to restore his creation plan. And these verses tell us about the power of God. Firstly, that he is an active God. It doesn't just say, so this happened as a result. No, no, time and time again, like hammer blows, you hear verse 21, I will send swarms. Verse 22, I will deal differently with the land of Goshen. Verse 23, I will send destruction. God is the active agent taking initiatives here against Pharaoh, personally involved to rescue his world and his people. Tells us not only that he is an active God, but that he's a universal God. In the ancient world, they thought that gods just presided over their own local territory. So there would have been gods in Egypt which had no authority outside of Egypt. And uh, the god of Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh may have thought, could have some influence and exercise some power in the land of Goshen amongst the children of Israel, but he had no impact or authority or power in Egypt itself. But this tells us that this God is not constrained by such boundaries or limited to being a territorial or a local deity. This God is quite capable of playing away from home and winning in the contest against Pharaoh. Uh, you get it all together. Time and time again here. Why is it that Pharaoh says, well, yes, you can go and worship God, but you need to stay in the land of Egypt to do so? Well, because then Pharaoh and his gods would remain in control. If they left Egypt, as Moses requested to go into the wilderness to worship God there, well, that would be outside of the control of the deities of Egypt. Pharaoh would have lost control. Ah, but this God has the power to impact Egypt as well as the land of Goshen, as well as the wilderness or the promised land to which he is going to take people. Our God is not a territorial God. He's not a limited God. He's not a God who can only act within certain boundaries. He's a global God. He's not a Western God. He's not a God who can be kept out of the Islamic world or the Hindu world or the Buddhist world, but a God who sovereignly strides, of course, across the world that he has made to exercise his power. And I love the way, 
as so often in scripture, actually, in which there's just a little down note. doesn't grab the headlines or the attention much, but just says it all. And so when Moses says, tomorrow the flies will come, we read in verse 24 the simple phrase, and God did this. And God did this. He's an effective God. He doesn't say anything that he doesn't deliver on. It should be no such great surprise. When God gives his word, well, God does it. It's as simple and straightforward as that. A matter-of-fact statement about the one who is the Lord of hosts, the Lord of lords, the one who is sovereign in the world and self-sufficient, has all that he needs, all the power at his fingertips to create a difference, and to act within his world for his own purposes. This is the God that this plague reveals. But there's another aspect of God's character that comes out here as well. It tells us about the passion that God has, the power that God exercises. But it also reveals in several ways the patience of God. The prophet Habakkuk later on prayed that though God was right to bring judgment, as you bring judgment, as you surely must, as you move against the oppressors like Pharaoh, please, Lord, in doing that, said Habakkuk, remember mercy. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2, in wrath, remember mercy. And here is God setting himself up against the tyrant in order that his people might be free. And because Pharaoh's resistant, he's moving in judgment. And yet, even in the act of judgment, even in the expression of wrath, God is remembering mercy. Pharaoh needn't be resisting God like this and copying the consequences of doing so. The patience of God to Pharaoh is revealed in several ways. First of all, God's patience is revealed as uh, he gives him a warning that this plague will take place tomorrow. Pharaoh, it needn't happen. There are 24 hours for you to get your act together and repent and stave it off. So God is saying, look, even at the last moment, you don't need to go down this route. You, you can't say that you have not been warned. God patiently says, Pharaoh, this will happen unless you change your course of life, change your heart and your stubbornness and will let your people, my people, go free. So God is patient, not in just delivering the plagues, but in warning that the plagues will come unless... God is patient in the face of Pharaoh's prevarication. Pharaoh tries to buy time and negotiate with, uh, with Moses. Verses 25 to 28 talk about that. Let's go for a compromise, Moses. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can go free and you can worship your God, but just do it within 
the territory. Uh, let's not be fanatical about this. What's all this insistence about needing to leave Egypt in order to worship God? Let's be reasonable. Sounds like some negotiations I know today that are going on, but that's another thing. I won't mention Brexit. I obviously don't need to. <laughs> and here is Pharaoh trying to negotiate up to the last moment. And God... Uh, doesn't zap him down immediately, deal with him, as God would be right to do. Stop wasting my time, Pharaoh. I've made the situation clear. No, God just patiently allows Moses to hold the line and yet insist that the children of Israel go out into the wilderness and yet God patiently waits for Pharaoh to come to his senses. And when he doesn't, well, we see the patience of God yet again as he brings salvation and relief to Pharaoh. Pharaoh has the nerve to say to Almighty God, in spite of all the evidence about God's power that he's already experienced in his life, Pharaoh has the nerve to say to Moses as he leaves him, oh, will you pray for me that the flies might leave, that the plague might be lifted, that I might have relief. Pharaoh has made an anti-God choice. Pharaoh has chosen to go his own way. But God graciously, mercifully responds. We read in verse 31, by Moses praying for him and God responding by uh, the flies leaving Pharaoh and his officials and his people it's one of those other little matter-of-fact phrases. Not a fly remained. <laughs> Isn't God gracious to the undeserving? How does Pharaoh respond? Well, it's not with humility, not with gratitude, not with surrender. Like a lot of people who try to bargain with God, God, if you do this, I'll do that. God does it, and then they forget all about their promise. <laughs> they go back on their word. And Pharaoh does that. And we read here that Pharaoh hardened his heart and wouldn't let the people go. Pharaoh thought he got out of God what he wanted. He was safe. <coughs> so never mind what happened to the children of Israel. He wants a contest with God to see who will blink first. But God will not blink first. He may have temporary relief. That's a sign of God's grace and patience and mercy. But in the end, Pharaoh drives God to allow that tenth plague to come, for life to be destroyed, for the firstborn of Egypt, affecting Pharaoh's own family tragically, to be killed by the angel of death. He needn't to have gone there but he hardened his heart against God, became more and more stubborn, pushing God to allow the axe to fall. Where are you in your relationship with God? Don't try and bargain with him. <laughs> don't play games with him. God is patient and merciful, but don't misunderstand his patience or his mercy as if he's saying to you, it doesn't really matter in the end 
whether you do my will or not. God is just allowing you the space to respond, not as Pharaoh did with a hard heart, to become more and more stubborn in your resistance, but rather to soften your heart and to surrender your life and let God have his way with you because his way is the way of life. His pleasure is not that he should deny you or destroy you or take life away or cause it to revert to chaos, but that you might know in your life, the fullness of life, the abundance of life that he intended creation to have. So get on the side of God's pleasure. Recognize God's power at work in our world and in your own life. And above all, profit from the patience of God. What do you want that God has not given you already in Christ. His patience shown most of all. His mercy revealed most of all as he gave us his son to be the saviour, the one who would cure all our issues and all our problems. Don't resist. Don't play games. Just say, Lord, I surrender. If only Pharaoh had done so, how different the story of the Old Testament might have been. But he didn't. How different your story might be if you surrender to this living God today. Amen.